0: Hello and welcome to New Books and Religion. I'm your co-host, Hilary Kale. There's no female religious figure so widely known and revered as the Virgin Mary. Filipino Catholics are especially drawn to Mama Mary and have a strong belief in her power, including her ability to appear to her followers. In Mother Figured, historical anthropologist Deirdre de la Cruz offers a detailed examination of Filipino interactions with Marian apparitions and miracles. By analyzing the effects of mass media on the perception and proliferation of these phenomena, De La Cruz charts the emergence of voices in the Philippines that are broadcasting Marian discourse globally. She charts a shift from local to national to transnational contexts, and from the representational to the virtual. Deirdre De La Cruz is speaking to us from Ann Arbor, where she's Assistant Professor of South Asian Studies and History at the University of Michigan. I'm pleased to welcome her to NBIR. Hi, Deirdre. Hi, Hilary. Thank you so much for having me. Well, thanks for being here. I wanted to begin by talking a little bit about you. You're an interdisciplinary scholar, and you've lived in a wide variety of places, Germany, Hawaii, the Philippines, of course, the continental U.S. Can you give us a bit of a sense of how you came to study the Philippines and religion in particular?
1: Well, my dad is Filipino. I'm half Filipino. Uh, My mom is from Hawaii, and I grew up mostly in Seattle, Washington. And there, when I was at the University of Washington, I studied with a number of prominent Southeast Asianists. Um, So I already had my uh, interest peaked in Southeast Asia as a region. Um, I also came, I guess you could say, of academic age at a time when it was becoming increasingly common for 1.5 and second-generation hyphenated Americans like myself to, quote, go back and study in the place where they or their parents came from. Uh, so that was one of the ways in which I got to the Philippines. But it was also, you know, for personal reasons. I mean, I grew up in the Catholic Church, um, but the Catholicism of my upbringing was very different Uh, from Philippine Catholicism. It really lacked the devotionalism. It lacked the kind of materiality that I think you see in the Philippines. I mean, the Catholicism of my upbringing was very... Um, Post-Vatican II, it was very, you know, folk singing, encounter, retreat kind of practices, and uh, I was just really taken with the differences between how I was mostly raised in an American, and not only an American, but a Pacific Northwest Catholic Church, and uh, what I saw in the Philippine context. Um I think, too, you know, given the number, as you mentioned, given the number of places that I've lived, um, although I have been interested in the Philippines and in religion, the purview of my work has always been global. Um, so I think of myself as a scholar that does the Philippines in the world or the Philippines and the world. And most of my work looks at how the Philippines has at different times um, acted as both center and periphery in other broader transnational or global imaginaries.
0: Which is certainly a theme that comes out here in the book.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So
0: did you, when you first went to the Philippines or first started looking into archives, did you know you were going to work on religion or was did that come as a bit of a surprise to you?
1: Um, I, I knew I was going to work in religion. I knew from pretty early on that I was interested in some of these comparative questions around different Catholicisms. Um, and there was a kind of familiarity, unfamiliarity to, uh, Filipino Catholicism that I was interested in exploring. I mean, where I grew up, we had, we grew up with the, the parish that I grew up with and had a sizable, Filipino and Filipino American community. So there were some, um, practices, um, that, Filipino practices that I grew up with in this parish. And also, of course, growing up around, um, my grandmother's Catholicism. Which was very pre-Vatican II Catholicism, heavy on rosary devotion, saints for every day of the year—you know, uh, kind of Catholicism. I was I was very drawn to some of those comparative differences between the two.
0: And at what point did you light on the topic of Mary and Marian apparitions in particular?
1: Ah, uh, okay. Um, this actually has little—the origin story of the particular project that became the book. Actually, that has little to do with the Philippines. Uh, It was 1995, maybe 1996, and I had just graduated from college at the University of Washington. I was floating around, working odd jobs, living with my parents, doing, you know, typical postgraduate things. (laughs) Um, And... I looked in the Seattle paper one morning and I saw that there had been reports of the Virgin Mary appearing on the back of a highway sign in a place called Sunnyside, Washington. Now, this was a place that was about three hours east of Seattle. So in the eastern part of Washington state. And it was a town that had a sizable um, Mexican immigrant and Mexican migrant worker community. So either out of curiosity or boredom or some combination of both, I basically jumped in the car and like went to see what I could see in Sunnyside. (laughs) Um, And when I got there, the highway that had previously been closed down because of the number of people that had like spilled out onto the highway to see the back of the sign, the highway had reopened. And um, at the site, there were a few people milling around and, um, a carpet of flowers and devotional candles that had been left uh, at the back of the highway sign. And I looked at the sign at the back side, and sure enough, there was clearly visible an outline, rainbow colored, of what could very easily be taken to be La Guadalupe, so the Virgin of Guadalupe. Now, the Highway Patrol had said that this was all like oxidation. I mean, they, of course, you know, as these things go, had their very rational scientific explanation for it. Um, But what it did for me was spark uh, something in my imagination such that on the way home, I became fixated on the backs of highway signs like I could like I was driving and all of a sudden I wasn't paying attention to like the side the sides of the signs that told me where I was going and and these other sides of the signs just (laughs) jumped out at me as these fields where something potentially marvelous could happen um now I didn't really Get any of this until much later, like I didn't have the language or like the theoretical tools to interpret any of this, Um, my own experience, like with an apparition. But it became clear to me later on uh, that what I was seeing or what I was witnessing or what I was experiencing was nothing less than the convergence of the supernatural and the modern I mean, you don't get more banal, a token of modernity than like the highway sign. Right. So, um, so that was a seed that I guess was planted in my head early on. And then how I came to do this project specifically on the Philippines has to do with the event that actually makes up the last chapter of the book, um, so when I was on a preliminary research trip in Manila in 1999, which was a really long time ago now, um I had opened the paper again. Clearly there's a theme. Like if anyone is looking for a topic, like they should just mm-hmm. open the newspaper. <laughs> um, but I had opened up the Philippine Daily Inquirer, which is one of the mainstream Manila newspapers, and saw an announcement that... A Manila-based devotional organization called the Mary's Army to Save Souls or Mass Media Movement was going to be orchestrating this huge birthday celebration of the Virgin Mary in Battery Park in New York City just a few weeks later. And because I was getting ready to go back, I, I went to graduate school in New York and I was getting ready to go back for the semester I thought to myself, well, cool, let me go, you know, let me go check this out. And when I went to the event back in New York, uh, I just was floored by, first of all, the level of orchestration that they must have had to undertake in order to bring all of these images of Mary um, to Battery Park. And what they did was they put them on boats and they, you know, floated them um, up the east, around the tip of Battery Park and up the East River and to the United Nations.
0: Right, and those are physical statues of man. These
1: are physical statues, exactly, physical statues. And so I was floored at the scale of the event, but what also really struck me was having learned that at the same time that they were orchestrating this specific variant of a Marian procession that privileged water, for example, Um, at the same time that they were carrying out this Marian procession, the entire event was simultaneously being captured and broadcast live back in the Philippines. So that was also where I thought, okay, you have images of Mary, you have you know, images that could be taken as a certain form of appearance of Mary. And then you have these virtual images of Mary that are simultaneously being beamed into the Philippines. And it was then that I had this aha moment of a project that could deal with um, religion and technological media at the same time. So that's how I got to the Marian devotion and the Marian apparition Topic specifically.
0: Both a fantastic story and a really interesting event that we'll pick up on later in our interview. But yeah. I also love that, that you have just solved all my problems with uh, getting graduate <laughs> students to choose topics. Oh, yeah. I will tell them, Deirdre says, just open the newspaper <laughs> yeah. or click click it's on that. It worked out for me. Yeah, it's it worked out, out for her. her. Exactly.
1: For both and of you, these, will, you, know, you will get a tenure moments. track job.
0: <laughs> yeah,
1: <laughs> exactly. Both of these formative moments simply came about by looking in the morning newspaper. <laughs> something I tell my graduate students too, in fact, uh, maybe not to find their topics, but definitely when they're doing either historical or ethnographic research, make sure you read a newspaper every day because, Mm -hmm. you know, that's where you can keep your finger on the pulse of what's happening.
0: (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. So some of our listeners may not be familiar with the larger historical context of these Marian apparitions, the Marian age or the Marian century, as scholars sometimes call it. um, Could you give us a sense of what often characterizes the inventory, as you put it at one point in the book, of Marian phenomena since about 1830? Mm -hmm. So what kinds of manifestations are we talking about in terms of apparitions in particular? Where are they occurring? Who are the visionaries? what kinds of events and messages, um, give us a, give us a bit of a sense of what we're talking about here.
1: Yeah, sure. Um, so the age of Mary is how it's referred to in a lot of Catholic circles and the beginning of this age or what some scholars have called the post-industrial age of Marian pilgrimage and devotion and, um, phenomena is usually cited as 1830. So that's, that's often the starting point for what's considered the Marian age and this is uh, the occasion where Mary appeared to Catherine Laboret in the chapel of the Mother House of the Sisters of Charity in Paris uh, in the context of tremendous political upheavals in France. Well, one of the things that characterizes this apparitions and many others that follow, especially some of the more famous ones like um, La Salette, famous ones in Europe to La, La Salette in 1846, Lourdes in 1858, Fatima in 1917. One of the things that characterizes these is how the messages delivered uh, are very much imbricated in the political contexts of the temporal world, of the of the contemporary world. So if you compare modern visions to those in the medieval and the early modern period, you'll see that the latter, such, such as the famous apparition of the Virgin of Guadalupe to Juan Diego in the 16th century, you'll see that these earlier apparitions were largely what I would consider self-referential, meaning they were largely trying to convince, it Mary trying to convince through the seer, the local community or the ecclesiastical hierarchy that she appeared, right? Um, by the time you get to the visions of Mary to Catherine Laboret and like 19th, 20th century visions, the messages delivered are often, um, uh, although they are prophetic, but they can be prophetic in nature and, um, apocalyptic in tone, the messages act like, divinatory news flashes. Right? They, 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 in, in the vision of Mary to Catherine Labouré, she said, the throne will be overturned, the streets will fill with blood, and so forth. So they're really speaking, so it's not just Mary appearing in the world, but Mary appearing to speak about the world and often speak about the social and political context that surrounds her appearance. Um, and this differs quite, quite a bit from what we see before the 19th century, especially back in the early modern and the medieval period. Another thing that characterizes modern apparitions is that the visionaries themselves are overwhelmingly children. Um, they're young, they're youth, oftentimes um, including girls, and this works with what was then one of the prevailing paradigms for evidence where the investigators of these things were concerned, which is to say the naivete, the simplicity, often the lack of education, the poverty of the seers in many modern apparitions are what provide compelling proof that they are to, believed, uh, that, that they're to be believed. Right? And this also differs from the early period where you have older visionaries who, um, Man, shepherds, um, it's just a different subject that you see among the seers. The final thing that I would say, there are are several things, but the final thing that I would say that I pay particular attention to in the book uh, that marks modern visions is the extraordinary capacity of news about the visions to spread and thereby engender Certain kinds of publics and certain kinds of devotional, sometimes pious publics. And this is one thing that I definitely emphasize in the book. And then, when or without, or sorry, within or without these publics, often spread more visionary phenomena. So you have a kind of serialization of vision phenomena that can take place out of one. Apparition that you don't really see taking place in an earlier historical period. Um, And you see this especially in somewhere like the Basque Country in 1931, um, which is the subject of a book by uh, an expert in these apparitions. Um, William Christian has written about this. So those are three main things that I would say characterize the Marian apparitions in the age of Mary. And um, scholars have generally understood this explosion or this burgeoning of Marian phenomena as anti-modern, um, as religious fervor against secularization. And one of the things that my book tries to argue is that if we pay as much, if not more, attention to the forms of appearance that Mary takes to the experience of the visionaries and how their descriptions of that experience demonstrate to us other sorts of changes in sense perception, seeing, hearing, feeling. Um, If we pay attention to these things, the generation of certain kinds of publics, more so than how... Marian visions provide a way for the masses to cope with the onslaught of the modern world, which is my really crass uh, characterization of how some of the scholarship has been um, carried out. If we pay attention to these other things, we'll find many of the novel features that are usually associated with the modern world, um, things like new kinds of representation, new forms of political agency, new capacities of technological media, and so forth, will find that many many of these modern things to assert themselves, which is to say, part of what my book wants to do in looking at these modern apparitions of Mary in the Philippines is to demonstrate really how they're modern, as opposed to how their reaction to the modern, which is um, how they've sometimes been understood.
0: And the Filipino context is such a fantastic one to think about that as well as you, as you really point out in the book. Because in some sense, the primary example for those of our readers who are not up on their Marian apparitions, but, you know, one of the primary examples. How dare they! How dare they! I know they should open a newspaper. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but um, but one of the primary examples for the sort of. Uh, paradigm that you're talking about, this this idea of the Marian apparition as a response, a uh, uh, traditional Catholic response to modern modernizations, uh, secularizations, is lured. It's, it's in France. Mm-hmm. Um, and so by taking it out of that context, you do such an interesting thing here because you give us a very different uh, historical context to think about mm-hmm. in the Philippines. And of course, Filipinos, as you note, know about these apparitions that are happening in Europe but they also have their own very long history of um knowing Mary of being devoted yeah. to Mary yeah so maybe we could get back um in a moment to these larger trends but first could you tell us a bit about why Mary has appealed to Filipinos even from the first moment that she was introduced by Spanish mich- missionaries
1: yeah absolutely um so there are. there's one way to account for Mary's appeal, uh, and that is to look back to the pre-colonial period of the Philippines. So we're talking prior to the six, mid-16th century, right? Um, the first organized expedition to the Philippines was in 1565, although Magellan was there in 1521. But if we look back to the pre-colonial period, we'll see that a lot of the spiritual... And non-spiritual world, I'm not sure quite how to characterize that, but the but both the spiritual and the non-spiritual world of local communities in the pre-colonial period were mediated by figures uh, that, for lack of a better word, we might think of as shamanic figures. Um, and that these figures known in... Um, the vernacular says the Babaylan or the Catalonan, that these figures were predominantly women or feminine men uh, or transgender women. Um, And so it would have made sense that when the Spaniards showed up and they, you know, unpacked all of their saints and Jesus and prayers and so forth, that the figure among the Spanish Christian repertoire that would be most familiar, recognizable to indigenous communities at that time would have been this intercessory female figure of the Virgin Mary. So that's one way to account for it. Interestingly though, that uh, explanation has been largely something that scholars have paid attention to. Um, scholars of the Philippines, both in the Philippines and outside of the Philippines, have paid attention to, and it's not—it wasn't usually the explanation that I was provided by the communities with whom I worked. Um, very frequently, what I heard in the Philippine, in the Filipino Marian context. Was the story of the wedding at Cana? So, this is a New Testament story, and some of your readers may be totally familiar with this, but this is a story where Jesus and Mary are at this wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the wedding party ran out of wine, and so Mary goes to tell Jesus to do something about it, you know, and Jesus basically rebukes her and he says, When, you know, my my hour is not yet come, my time is not yet here. And Mary still tells the servants to, you know, get ready essentially and do what he's going to instruct you to do. Um, And for a lot of biblical scholars, this is the first uh, miracle that Jesus performs. But interestingly, in the Philippine context, when I heard this story in homilies, in um, inspirational, Talks and so forth in the Philippine context, when I heard this story, the first thing to, to that I noted was that um, it was a, a, a social scene that would have been very familiar uh, in a Filipino context where there is frequently the pressure to make sure that you have at least the appearance of abundance, like at a party or, you know, at a wedding or something. So the fact that Mary might've felt empathy for the couple or for the wedding party about the fact that, Oh my gosh, they ran out of wine. Like that's terrible. Everybody's going to be so embarrassed. That was a scene that resonated, <laughs> I think, in this particular cultural context. Um, but more importantly, when I heard this story in the Philippine context, what was emphasized was not necessarily that this was the first sign of Christ's messianic mission but that his mother <laughs> that his mother worked to pressure him and to intervene uh and basically you know it was going to make him do this even if he didn't want to even if he was you know petulantly going to tell her that he didn't want to right um so In the Philippines, Mary is really a mother. It is her motherhood that is emphasized over everything else, Um, over her virginity, uh, over her... um, Yeah, so it's basically, I mean, her motherhood that's emphasized above all.
0: Um, Right, this isn't the young Mary of the Annunciation, This is this is the Mary who has a son who is aware of family dynamics at at the wedding of Cana, for example. Right. Yeah. She's a woman with uh, with wherewithal. But it also sounds like she's, as you note in the book and and you just intimated now, I mean, a woman with both deep empathy for the human situation. Yes. that, That people find themselves in.
1: Yes, Absolutely. Absolutely. This is not to say that the the Mary of the Annunciation doesn't uh, get invoked either, but it gets invoked in very specific circumstances. So I've heard women especially talk about or bring up the scene of the Annunciation when they felt like they were being called to serve and propagate Marian devotion, um, that they were being asked, you know, to... Basically, carry out uh, propagation, and um, in those contexts, I often heard the scene of the Annunciation invoked. But that—that that was those those would be a little bit different from I, I think a more, oh, more general characterization of Mary as first and foremost Christ's mother, and mother of us all. I mean, there's a you and that's partly where the, the question of the universal comes in. And as you noted in your introduction, the name by which Mary is most known in the Philippines is Mama Mary.
0: You spend a fair amount of time in the book using historical sources from the 19th century. So really before the the period of the mass media that are or maybe the beginnings of the period of the mass media that I want to talk about um, in a moment. But Maybe you can tell us a bit more about that nineteenth-century period. There's circulation of chapbooks, printed materials. What is what does Mary look like at, at that moment for Filipinos?
1: Right. So the so the book itself is divided up into three sections, and I think of the three sections as loosely corresponding to different forms of mass media, different technologies of mass media, different materialities of mass media. Uh, that one sees in ascendance in those different periods. So it, the book does also move chronologically. And for the first part of the book, which is the, you know, mid to late 19th century turn of the, uh, century Philippines, which is to say the colonial period, um, I focus on the burgeoning of print material and the ways in which Through uh, literature like chapbooks, through prayer books, um, hagiographies and so forth that are printed and mass printed and circulated widely, the ways in which Mary is, first of all, being, or how appearances of Mary are being narrativized and how this narrativization of appearances of Mary, both in the Philippines and outside of the Philippines, is serving to ground and fix what might have been hitherto limited to, like, local lore, right? So how it is that an appearance of Mary that has, you know, was believed to have taken place in a small town or village in the Philippines in the 17th century when it's written down and circulated in chapbook form, it's a kind of domestication. It's a kind of institutionalization of what might have popularly circulated. So I look at the the, the print media in this way. I also look at the way in which print media in the form of chapbooks, uh, but then later in the form of poetry, um, newspapers, and so forth, how this literature is at the same time, translating into the Philippine vernaculars a world where apparitions of Mary are also taking place. Um, so, for example, a chapbook that tells the, the, the history of the apparition of uh, Guadalupe to Juan Diego. It gets translated uh, into Tagalog. And all of a sudden, um, the Philippines and Mexico, as part of the wider Spanish imperial world, are brought into uh, the same field of vision. And it's not just the translation of external apparitions of Mary into the Philippine context, but also the projection of like the Philippine context out into the world. Um, so that's one of the, the examples of the, of the kinds of ways that I examine this print media at that period. The other way that I look at it, and this, this would constitute most of chapter two, is I look at how Mary at the end of the 19th century, which is to say during the revolutionary period, of uh, the Philippines against Spain and then against the United States, how Mary becomes more of a symbolic figure to represent the nation in the figure known as Inang Bayan, which basically means motherland. Um, And the ways in which that symbolic capacity of Mary comes about through multiple translations. First of all, of the idea of the motherland uh, that's widely globally circulating throughout the 18th and 19th century. So the translation of the idea of motherland or the idiom of motherland into the Filipino context, um, but also the, how the, the story of Christ and Mary and Mary as mother and Mary as a symbolic figure for the nation how that story gets um, or the, how that story becomes a vehicle for uh, the articulation of anti-colonial sentiment at the time. And this is I mean I'm this I'm not the first person to do this by any means, but I look at different sets of materials than what historians of uh, the Philippine Revolution and Filipino nationalism have examined.
0: And you're following, as you noted, you have three sections, and you're following loosely a chronological uh, structure in this book. And so we move from this colonial context in the 19th century, uh, early 20th century, and the next really uh, rich case study that you give us is from the period right after the Second World War, and that's uh, a really Uh, important and undoubtedly traumatic period uh, for Filipinos. So I want to zero in on the event that you describe in a lot of detail, which is the apparition at Lipa in 1948. And Mary allegedly appears to Teresita. She's a novice at the time in the Carmelite order. What was the context for those apparitions in the convent following, as I said, right on the heels of World War II? Yeah, um, First of all, I have to say there's been
1: major developments in this case that I feel like now is the perfect opportunity to, <laughs> to share uh, because these developments came in after the book had already gone to press. So on September 12th of last year, so just a few months ago, on September 12th, the Archbishop of Lipa, Ramon Arguelles, declared that the apparitions of Mary – to Terracita Castillo in Lipa, were in fact worthy of belief. Oh, this is huge. wow! This was huge news, and this was an extraordinary declaration for a number of reasons, not least of which. And here's, I'll provide a little bit more historical background to the case um, in the nineteen late nineteen forties and early nineteen fifties. This recent declaration was an extraordinary event, um, largely because. Upon hastily investigating the apparitions and the miraculous phenomena at LiPA in the late 1940s and early 1950s, the local church at that time declared that there was nothing supernatural about it. And not only did they declare that you know the apparitions and the miracles um, were not supernatural, but they also shut the whole thing down. Uh, I mean, it was a very harsh, investigation basically that was carried out by the church. It was very bad. Um, and then following it, you know, they burned one of the, I mean, the visionary's diary. Um, they told the nuns that they had to get rid of some of the miraculous objects, um, that, uh, rose petals basically that had appeared at the time um, they
0: imposed a gag order, too.
1: Yeah. Well, they, yeah, basically they said that the nuns couldn't speak about it, that nobody could talk about what had happened. And they essentially imposed, uh, silence uh, upon the Carmelite community and by extension upon the broader devotional community that had briefly formed around the miracles and apparitions of Lipa. So there were 30 years of silence around these events uh, until around the 1980s. And one of the things that I was ethnographically interested in, uh, I did my research in the early 2000s, and one of the things that I was ethnographically interested in was how this devotional community navigated between their obedience to the church and their conviction that Mary had appeared right i mean this is a this is a deeply pious obedient community this is not a place of um you know this is not a site of subversion or you know resistance to the hierarchy um this is a place lipa itself is famous for its uh Pride in its own kind of Hispanic heritage for its devotion to the Catholic Church and so forth. And, uh, and so I was, I was really interested um, in how this long history of silence that had slowly, you know, kind of been broken, um, and mostly by efforts of the laity um how this long history of silence had structured the ways in which people felt like they could or could not talk about the the events of the of the 1940s and 1950s. Um, and you know this, I mean there there had been by the time I was doing research a certain amount of um public openness about what had happened. But depending on what archbishop was in charge at the time, um you know, this sense of openness around what had happened and around the devotion um, was um, constrained in different ways. And that changed when the new Archbishop uh, Arguelles took uh, the seat of the Archdiocese in 2004. And then there was another investigation that was carried out and that resulted in this extraordinary declaration of, of last year. So, That's like a lot of background, I mean, as brief as I can put it, background on um, the history of the apparitions and the miracles of Lipa as they took place in the the 1940s and 50s, and then the long period of silence and censure that ensued, and then it kind of coming back into the the public light. Now, historically, uh, Lipa, one of the things I was interested in uh, historically about Lipa is it is a great example of what I think of as the nestedness of apparitions of Mary and of how such phenomena can inhabit and make an impact on a number of different geographical scales and how an event like this or a miraculous occurrence like this can be informed by a number of uh, different geographic uh, scales and constituencies. So, locally speaking... Lipa is important because it was the uh, headquarters for the Japanese military administration during the Second World War. And it's a place whose inhabitants witnessed tremendous atrocities, um, both at the hands of the Japanese, but also when the Americans returned and basically razed the city to the ground. So there's a sense in which the apparitions and miracles of Lipa really fit the model of other modern apparitions uh, where, you know, you see Mary appear in a moment of crisis or, you know, following up on a moment of crisis um, in a place that has been heavily traumatized, um, that was devastated uh, by forces largely beyond most people's control. So that's the first, I guess, well, there are a couple centers, I guess, of 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 this history. Um, the second center is that the apparition the apparitions, I should say plural, took place in a Carmelite convent. Uh, and this is very important because it doesn't follow the earlier colonial period of apparitions of Mary where um, what constituted the form of appearance, what, what constituted the apparition of Mary was the discovery of an image of Mary, say, in nature, in a tree, in a lake, in a cave. I mean, this is a lot of the apparition stories that circulate in the Spanish colonial period take this form, right? So the fact that this is an appearance of Mary in the flesh to an novitiate of this renowned religious global order, I think is really important and and an important uh, thing to consider when thinking about the, the the history of these miracles and apparitions in the first place. The other important uh, historical context that Lipa helps illuminate is the history of the global church. Um, This was a time when the, Pope Pius XII um, was very Marian um, and also a time that saw a burgeoning of apparitions in Southwestern Europe. So we have at the highest reaches of the hierarchy, um, a Marian Pope, a proliferation of apparitions in the wake of war, but a lot of ambivalence within the upper echelons of the hierarchy around this phenomenon may be getting out of control, right? Um, at the national church level, you also have a very tense political context where uh, during the Japanese occupation of the Philippines, the church was very much divided and the post-war period was seen as a time when a, the ranks of the local and national hierarchy had to be sort of reigned in, and B, there was potential for the hierarchy to be filled with Filipinos for the first time in the history of Catholicism in the Philippines. So it's just a kind of perfect storm of both... Uh, Institutional histories, um, very localized events and collective experiences, uh, and all of this against a broader global backdrop of similar phenomena that is circulating and taking place. Um, and it's an extraordinary, I mean, it's an extraordinary history.
0: One of the ways that you talk about the phenomenon also outside of the convent is the actual physical circulation of rose petals and the creation of publics, new publics, uh, devotional publics through that circulation of the actual objects themselves. And I thought that was a, a fantastic chapter, wonderfully evocative, maybe because... The uh, little Therese, the little flower was so popular in Quebec in this period as well. Oh, yeah. Not sure. So there was yeah. a lot of rose petals and rose scents and things like that that yes, people in Quebec exactly. were smelling and holding and touching in that period. What are these petals and who are they drawing to them? How are they being circulated?
1: Well, the showers of petals was one of the attendant phenomena the apparitions and petals had fallen inside the convent um, after Mary's appearances. And uh, they really represented the kind of bursting out of the confines of the cloister when they started to fall on the convent grounds. And this is what I think of as the, you know, the, the more public manifestation of the miracles and the apparitions that took, that, that were um, limited to the cloister that were witnessed by uh, Tara Singh. So, the, so the, the petals themselves garnered, as you might imagine, a tremendous amount of attention. Um, and the way that I look at them in the book is as both a phenomena to be mediated uh, by things like the press And as acting as media in their own right. Um, So I follow the stories about the petals through the Manila newspapers, through um, vernacular newspapers, through American newspapers, and through Spanish newspapers. I mean, basically, I follow the phenomena of the rose petals. Outward in widening Concentric circles And I look at the sometimes Overlapping and sometimes quite Distinct publics That formed out of the Circulation of news Around um, of the petals Themselves and some of these Publics were uh, a very you know, Strong Catholic Anti-communist public um, Some of these Publics were uh, The sort of nostalgic for colonial times public. (laughs) You see this in some American uh, publications. And I look at how the petals, I mean, in addition to how stories of the petals circulated, I look at how the petals themselves in their own circulation. So these petals traveled too. People would make requests for petals and then those who had them in the Philippines would send them abroad. Um, Petals as they were themselves circulated and then reproduced in things like prayer cards Uh, and then circulated further, how these petals in their own circulation gave rise to a, a specific kind of material media network. And it's just, I mean, it was so much fun to do that chapter and to follow the lives of a single petal, for example, from the Philippines to Spain, you know, to the United States and um, the sensation that they really caused.
0: And it gets back to this ongoing theme in the book about both the uh, media and also material that is being circulated globally out from the Philippines, rather than always thinking about the Philippines as a periphery that simply receives messages or receives material.
1: Yeah, exactly.
0: Earlier, You were talking about how seers are often understood to be humble or poor, young children even. And uh, you note, however, that it's since, especially the mid-1980s, the apparitions have been especially popular amongst a middle-class audience um, since the People Power Revolt. Can you explain a bit more about those events and the resulting uptick in devotion to Mary?
1: Yeah, so this is, I think, a very important um, moment in the revitalization of Marian devotion in the Philippines. And just to give a little bit of background, so the so the People Power Revolt took place over... A few days in February 1986. Um, and it was a, an event where millions of people spilled out onto a famous highway in Manila to protect, um, several military defectors from the forces of Ferdinand Marcos who had ruled the Philippines for decades at that point. Um, and although that you know there had been years, of course, of dissent, of increasing dissent to the Marcos uh, to the Marcos regime, the cathartic overthrow is often seen as the as the people power revolt itself. And historians and analysts of the of those four days uh, point to the largely middle class, urban, you know, Manila based composition of that revolt Uh, and a lot of um, people who were there as well as more revisionist historians of uh, more Catholic persuasion will often claim or not claim but underscore the religiosity of that revolt so when you look at pictures for example, of the People Power Revolt in 1986, you will often see nuns praying the rosary, people carrying images of the Virgin Mary, specifically Fatima, uh, both in its visual iconography and in the experience of people who were there according to their testimonies. There was a kind of religious dimension to that event, for many. Not for all, but for many. Many of the main actors in the revolt, furthermore, especially women, uh, and one woman in particular whose name is June Keithley, who was really instrumental in helping spread the word through a clandestinely located radio station uh, for people to get out into the streets. Many of the people, especially women, who were either out there on the streets or who were instrumental, Played a big role in uh, mobilizing people to the streets. Experience this as, as a religious experience and as a particularly Marian experience, as a, as a experience where Mary was, if not inspiration, I mean, if not intervening, then at least inspirational. And so in the post people power period, you see uh, coming off of that collective religiosity. A return of many women, especially, to these traditional forms of Marian devotion, both traditional and modern, which is to say traditional, such as praying the rosary, uh, modern, such as following news of apparitions that are taking place throughout the world and and going on pilgrimage to modern apparition sites such as Lourdes. So it's no accident, or I don't think it's an accident, that immediately, you know, soon after the People Power Revolt, a lot of these Filipino Catholics that I've been describing, also these actors in the revolt or people who were part of the revolt, they became interested in the apparitions or the alleged apparitions of Mary in Medjugorje, uh, which is now in Bosnia-Herzegovina, and started to lead pilgrimage tours there, started to uh, follow developments there, the messenger, the, the messages of the visionaries in Medjugorje. And there came to be a kind of back and forth or a dialectical movement between The uptick of Marian devotion as it stemmed from the experience of the people power revolt and the availability of these current and um, very popular and, you know, very attention grabbing apparitions that were taking place on the other side of the world. Um, So there too, you see not just the local instantiation of Marian religiosity um, or the national, I guess, or no, I would still call it local instantiation of Marian religiosity, but also how it is informed by these other globally circulating cases of the supernatural. And then how that in turn contributes to the development of a Filipino Marian devotion that itself seeks to spread throughout the world, and that's really where a lot of the last part of the book goes, is in thinking about the ways in which, uh, as you said earlier, the Philippines, you know, is no longer just the receiving country or the receiving. Community. A lot of the Filipino Catholics with whom I worked are not just the receiving community for global mission or global propagation of devotion to Mary, but actually now taking it upon themselves to travel out um, of their city, of their country, to propagate devotion to Mary throughout the world.
0: Which is a nice segue to that final really rich chapter in the book. Um, where you talk about the World Marian Peace Regatta in yeah. New York City. We mentioned it earlier when you were talking about uh, your initial fieldwork in 1999. But what maybe wasn't clear to our listeners is that this peace regatta, although it was taking place in New York City, was the brainchild of a woman who was based in Manila. And in the chapter, you put it into context with a crying statue in the Philippines, as well as a very tense political situation where a Filipino truck driver and overseas worker is taken hostage. So you weave together these events in this fascinating way in that chapter. Can you give us a sense of how those events come together for you? Um, and how does that add to our sense of the creation of a Filipino universal as as you note in your book title?
1: Yeah, um, this is really tough because the chapter has so many layers to it. that to try to to try to encapsulate it, I think it's going to be tough. But I'm gonna, but I'll try. So, so the the context of the chapter is is what I would call the broadly the global Philippines uh, in the contemporary period, which is defined on the one hand by the extraordinary circulation of overseas Filipino workers that are usually on contract, go out for a year or two years and come back to the Philippines uh, and go back out and back and forth. Uh, And this has been taking place for decades now. So the global Philippines, which is defined on the one hand by this group, this this constituency, this population, really, and on the other hand by the middle and upper class Marian devotees uh, that I described throughout the latter part of the book. The chapter focuses on these two events, right? So, then these two events that take place outside of the Philippines. One being the kidnapping of a Filipino truck driver in Iraq, the other being uh, the World Marian Peace Regatta, celebration of Mary's birthday that took place on September 11th, 1999, again in Battery Park in in New York City. And what the chapter tries to do is Back and forth between these two constituencies and events, and show um, the interlocking field of dates, circumstances, global positioning that bring these events into some configuration of relatedness. I try to show how as different. these two populations might be, class-wise especially, um, how they really are part of a shared transnational imaginary that's made up of belief in divine intervention, histories of migration, diaspora, U.S. empire, and then, of course, the mass media. And it's a chapter where I feel like the threads of mediation that I've been focusing on throughout the book kind of come together. Um, in terms of where that is related to this theme, or that's in, you know, that's in this, this theme that's also my subtitle of, of the book, the Filipino Universal, uh, as I noted in response to your previous question, the book really tries to tell the history of the shift of Christian mission from. Europe and North America to what is often now called the global South and how the Philippines uh, plays a role in that shift and how you do see now um, more Filipinos and, you know, in my case, Filipino Catholics that are devoted to the Virgin Mary heeding a call to mission, heating a call to spread devotion to Mary throughout the world uh, and you know wherever you have Christian mission, you have a fundamental belief in the universality of Christianity. You have a fundamental belief that anyone can be Christian so one thing that the World Mary and Peace Regatta shows is Filipinos who are uh, heeding a call to spread devotion to Mary throughout the world, and as such are becoming uh, a new kind of Christian subject in the Philippines um, and believing that anyone can be Christian and not only that anyone can be Christian, but that Mary is at the center of this Christianity. And so that's where the universal comes in because Christian mission is driven by this fundamental belief in in the universality of Christianity.
0: What you're pointing out is this interplay between a very locally situated kind of Christianity. In a sense, I mean Filipino uh, Marian Christianity and Marian devotions, but the sense that this is uh,
1: which itself absolutely- is only one. Which itself is only one variety of Catholicism. Philippines, right? Yeah. Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah, of course. But there's something sort of interesting, I mean, for those of our listeners who are aware of discussions in anthropology of Christianity, since so often and and you note this in the introduction, so I'm I'm not saying anything you haven't already said, but (laughs) as as you note, I mean a lot of times when we think about the spread of a global Christianity, And when we think about the spread also of modernity, we're thinking about Protestantism, that that's what scholars have kind of focused on. So this book does a wonderful job at shifting that conversation to look at how it could happen in a place and to people like Filipinos and in the context of this particular kind of Marian devotion as well. Yeah. What if if there were and I'm really putting you on the spot. What if there were uh some take home points for uh <laughs> listeners from the thirty-second version? Yeah, the thirty-second, <laughs> the elevator speech of the take-home points. Yeah. What would you want them to walk away with, perhaps uh, beyond what we've already said, if we've missed anything?
1: Yeah, I mean I I there so the first would be what I've just described, that the centers, you know, is for is for Listeners, I guess, to be reminded or at least to learn that the centers of Christian mission are increasingly in places like the Philippines. I guess another take home point would be that apparitions of Mary are more modern than one might think. A third, uh, you know, a third thing that the book tries to do is make an argument for thinking more in terms of religious publics than divisions between the popular and the orthodox because publics can be constituted and fall apart and reconstituted and thinking in terms of publics allow one to examine the place of the mass media in their production. I don't know if that would, those are really points, but you know, take home points, but those are, those are the three that I would say. If you're interested in those three issues, then you might be interested in my book.
0: <laughs> You'll absolutely be interested in your book and probably <laughs> probably in whatever you're working on now, too, which is a nice segue yet again to my last question, which is to ask you about what's on the horizon. What project oh, are you yeah. working on?
1: Yeah. Um, so right now, I think, you know, I'll always, I'll always work on religion. And right now I'm turning away from, uh, what might, you know, one of the things I was interested in in the, in Mother Figured was the increasing interest of some Filipino Catholics in, in issues of orthodoxy and doctrine, which is not how, uh, scholars have previously looked at Filipino Catholicism because that took up so much of my brain space when I was working on the book, I'm now moving towards the really unorthodox Um, and looking at 19th uh, century spiritism in the Philippines. Um, So spiritism is basically the belief in the ability to communicate with the dead. Uh, But it took on a particular, I mean, it, it existed as a, as a, particular movement in the 19th and 20th century throughout the world and was in the 1860s, I think, codified by a French educator named Alain Kardec uh, into a very, you know, kind of treatise, philosophical treatise, and made its way through colonial routes to a lot of the world. So I'm interested in the ways that spiritism gets organized in the Philippines in the late 19th century, how it gets articulated with anti-colonial sentiments, but also how uh, Filipino Spiritists self-consciously see themselves as part of this global and even extra-global uh, community, right? Of of not just people forming Spiritist unions throughout the world, but of a broader humanity and uh, post-humanity or uh, outside of humanity that that happens to exist um, in the spirit world. Uh, and what I want to do eventually is trace the foundation of Cardicist spiritism in the Philippines from the late 19th century down through the mid 20th uh, century where it then becomes the phenomenon known as psychic surgery, which is basically um, practitioners who will without anesthesia or tools like physically operate on a patient. So you might've seen, I mean, the, just go to YouTube and like type it in. It's often very gory. Um, <laughs> But these guys became really popular from the mid uh, 20th century in the United States with um, ESP researchers in the United states and um, and then later some of them branched off and became like new age practitioners so again, like with the second book, I'm tracing a, a genealogy of religious practice and one that serves to move the Philippines from periphery to center. So from a place that uh, is at the receiving end, uh, you know, through colonial routes of a globally circulating doctrine and practice to uh, a place where uh, you, in particular locations in the Philippines are now being considered these points of earth, energy where, you know, the Telerik and the cosmic collide and drawing New Age practitioners and New Age seekers from all over the world. (laughs) So that's basically what's on the agenda next. And it will also um, involve both historical and ethnographic research. So I started with the historical research and we'll see when I can uh, have a chunk of time to go into the ethnographic stuff.
0: Well, I'm really looking forward to that and to yes. following your work. Thank you so much for uh, being with us here.
1: Oh, thank you. It was my pleasure, and I'm, I'm grateful for the opportunity. Thanks so much.